This is the Notion Club podcast. I'm Justin Hall, and joining me is Ian Duncan from another part of the country. He is beaming in through quarantine-proof technology to join us today. Because we are separated by hundreds of miles, it caused us to think about the practice of correspondence over great distances. How do you keep up friendships and relationships through separation, perhaps even through quarantines? Today we're talking about an ancient ritual of communication, a ceremony that has all but passed from the modern world, only observed any longer by a few zealous practitioners. A ritual of communication that transcends time and space, through which even the dead can contact us. And no, we're not talking about a seance. We're talking about letter writing. How real, physical, paper-ending letters can preserve history, can envelop the very essence, the very soul of a person. How relationships are not merely preserved by them, but deepened and why you ought to take up pen and paper and participate in this cherished tradition. This is episode 7 of The Notion Club. Ian, you're joining me from 300 miles away, and we're recording this remotely using the magic of technology. And because we get that war correspondent feel, (laughs) and because we're maintaining this dialogue and discussion sort of um, over a long distance, we thought it, it would be a good opportunity to talk about communication over long distances, keeping up correspondence. And now in the 21st century, we have any number of ways of doing that. But we want to talk about actually, kind of ironically, because we want to talk about it, a very outmoded form of communication, which is letter writing. Maybe we can just start with Ian. I I know you've mentioned your experience with letter writing in your earlier years, um, both in college and, and maybe with pen pals. Maybe describe that. What do you think of when you think of letter writing? I think the first thing that comes to mind is the cursive letters I used to receive in the mail, in my mailbox. I I distinctly remember walking to the PO from the cafeteria at school and finding a letter in my box and seeing and knowing immediately, you know, which one of my grandmother's that cursive writing was from and, and remembering the feeling that you get when it was a very a, a, a feeling of personal connection, uh, the way a person, I think it's almost going to be hard to explain this to future generations that don't use handwriting, certainly that don't have any kind of distinctive handwriting that they learned and, you know, in penmanship and practiced all their lives, that feeling that it almost communicates the way a person's picture does there is a very distinctive type of of handwriting each of my grandmothers practiced and and learning some in some cases to decode <laughs> one of my <laughs> grandmothers was particularly difficult to read that was that was probably one of the most significant to me since i was away from home at the time mm-hmm. um, sojourning in ohio as you are very familiar with <laughs> yep 
Yeah, we I wrote letters, physical, real physical letters, and and you know by hand and put them in envelopes and mailed them with a letter. And that is that is seeming very prehistoric now. Uh, it was interesting to sort of in my lifetime to live through the transition from you know writing letters to when I got older and learned to type. I would type letters and then enclose those letters in envelopes. Mm. And then later when, you know, email came around, it was a weird time of transition where people were still trying to preserve some of the physicality of that, printing out those emails and you know, printing out, you probably, everybody probably still has a grandmother somewhere who's printing out <laughs> web pages of things she finds on the internet, you know. Mm. We were trying, in a sense, to bridge that transition to keep it physical, something that was becoming very elusive in nature. So emails, I've I've heard of this historic practice. What yeah, now even that's hard for me to even believe how quickly emails were, you know, it's funny, we wrote letters for thousands of years, you know, the first letters were written on stone, mm-hmm. you know, slabs and and cuneiform tablets and all this kind of stuff. And now for thousands of years, we wrote and sent physical letters and then email lasted for all of 15, less than 15 years. I would maybe 20 years tops before it became this, probably not even that long before it became this outmoded thing that you only use for business transactions, but nobody is messaging, hey, how are you doing? (laughs) By email, we have social media, we have text messages, we have all this sort of thing. The first thing that comes to mind when you say that is, I mean, we have email, we have text messages, and all the different forms that takes, but you still have your grandmother's letters in physical form, and who knows what text messages I sent five years ago. I'm sure that information is still floating around somewhere in the ether, but you still have the physical handwritten message from your grandmother with you know her DNA on it. Yes. And that's the thing that you're never going to come across. Your kids, your grandkids are never going to find a, an old shoebox full of your old text messages in the <laughs> attic. And, and emojis. <laughs> and it, with emojis. Oh, look at the emojis my great-grandfather used <laughs> back in 19. Yeah, that, or whatever. Uh, that, that's not going to... That's not going to happen. And that in itself is, I think, an argument for the importance of physical letters. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think how much scholarship, and uh, especially if you like to read biographies, how much scholarship is based on written correspondence right. in the past that we would not know anything about certain details of people's lives unless they had written it in a letter. Yep. And I really have a lot of doubt that these emails are going to be floating around in any kind of accessible form. This type of information is just not meant to to last. Right. But even if it was, even if you could read everything that you text and send and emails, all the emojis, all the GIFs, because it's not meant to be permanent, there's nothing there that deserves permanence. We don't approach the medium of text message as a thing that deserves permanence. Right. I'm going to sit down at my writing desk and pull out a hundred pound stationery and compose a text message to send you. Exactly. The medium influences the content. And and that's, that's something that I've noticed with letter writing, because at some point we're going to have to get around to an apology of letter writing to say, well, this is why it should still be practiced because it is outmoded. It isn't an efficient form of communication. But I have noticed that when you sit down to write a letter, 
there's a kind of and and there are different aspects of this that i i'd love to talk about but when you sit down to write a letter there is a ceremonious nature to letter writing that doesn't attend text messages or emails and because of that the writing itself is elevated above that of text messages or instant messaging you know and i found that there are things that i can say in a letter that I would never say in a text message, and maybe not even face-to-face, some of the most meaningful communications I've had ever with anyone has been through the form of letter writing. I'm able to say things in a way that is elevated, that is intentionally meaningful, that might be, you know, if you, if you put it in a text message, it might seem sappy or sentimental or, or even confrontational, you know. But because of the medium itself, because this is meant to be permanent and what is in it ought to be worthy of the medium itself. Yeah, I was actually went down in the basement this morning looking for some of my uh, grandmother's letters and I was I was reading through some of them. And I was struck by how the pace of a letter is so much different. She pauses, she looks out the window, she mm. starts telling me about the color of the leaves. <laughs> you know, there's a very different pace and feel and ceremony like you're saying to letter writing that lends itself to literature you know it's almost like letter writing is the training grounds for writing literature and for in in a much more direct way than i don't see that being the case for text messages or emails we're not composing right in in the same way and neil postman used to say about television the medium is the message yeah there's a sense that inescapably the medium changes things it changes the tone it changes the quality it changes the experience and i think it's really a mark of the 21st century how suddenly we abandon things that have been practiced for hundreds or thousands of years because suddenly a new technology has cropped up that makes it no longer necessary. And we've done this in in so many different areas and hardly anyone has ever stopped to ask if we should or what is being lost in the process. Uh, There's a book by Jacques Ellul called The Presence of the Kingdom and he talks about technology in a very broad way, all the different types of technology that we've embraced Mm -hmm. and we've never asked the, the moral questions, if we should, or even the aesthetic questions, should we do this? Is this an improvement? Mm-hmm. But if it can be done, it will be done. Right. And since we're so often creatures that just follow the course of least resistance, yep. now letter writing is something we have to take up as a discipline. Yes. Um, as a recrudescence mm-hmm. to uh, a past time. And, and yeah, I think we're going to get into just what a benefit that can be. Yeah. On the uh, this ceremonious nature of, of letter writing, I actually talk about this in one of the recent letters I wrote to a friend, so maybe I can read this. So th- this is a friend who lives in Scotland. So talk about inefficient, uh, sending something across across the ocean. So I write, It has always seemed odd how letter writing invites a kind of formality and perhaps ceremony that does not attend other forms of communication face-to-face conversations, or online messaging. It's difficult to say whether this has always been true in history, or if the practice of letter-writing has become so distantly arcane that we now approach it with the same manner of caution or reverence with which we walk through museums, 
gazing on mummified artifacts from millennia past and keeping a respectable distance, as though standing too near would trigger an alarm and summon a swarm of security carrying batons and sour expressions, their noses scrunched in disapproval as though they'd smelled the decaying pharaoh or something like that. I'd like to think that it has always been true, that there is a kind of timeless magic in the act of putting pen to paper and trailing the ink until blots become lines and lines, sentences, and sentences, worlds. The magic of creation resides in the act. And the convenience of instant messaging has its place, of course, but it cannot replace the truth of this object, a real thing from the mountains of Appalachia, tinged with mountain air. And it's odd to think that some part of Appalachia has now been carried bodily across continents, returning to its native country some part of the essence my Scottish ancestors left behind. Maybe it's also odd that the entirety of this letter is about letters. If it seems odd to us that this first letter shouldn't talk about anything but itself as an introduction, maybe that betrays our modern prejudices, as though communication ought to be hurried to achieve some pragmatic agenda, or as though a timeless practice didn't merit a patient conversation, or that there wasn't such a thing as eternity to catch up on all we never hurriedly achieved. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about physical things being born, you know, back and forth. I have these old war letters from my grandfathers, mm-hmm. both my great grandfather in France during World War One, and my my grandfather in the Second World War stationed in in Britain. Mm-hmm. And there's often enclosures folded into these old yellowed letters. You know, there's Dutch marks and sometimes Nazi coins and bits of memorabilia, postcards, pictures. There, There's no way to do that, you know, in the body of an email. There's no scent. There's no, no. there's no color in the stamp. There's no cues in the handwriting. You can't quickly underline a word to emphasize it right. the way, you know, or you can't write with a large hand. Even the Apostle Paul did that in Scripture. <laughs> yeah. right. right. And, and so there's... There's so many cues and physical messages. I think that the essence of the modern era is summed up in the the phenomenon of a letter mailed with anthrax in it. That's <laughs> that's the viciousness and the cruelty and the degradation of human culture in a nutshell. I think is mm-hmm. that now we're literally afraid to receive physical objects in the mail. We're afraid to breathe the air when we leave our houses. We're afraid to open up a letter that, you know, these things have to go through security screening before they reach celebrities, government officials. You know, this is this is where we've come to in the in the modern era that we can't we can no longer even exchange things that have that appeal to all our senses. We are we are becoming digital as much as is possible. And and even when we could, we don't avail ourselves of these things. You know, the, as, as meaningful as it is, someone to receive a letter. And I, I know everybody loves receiving a handwritten letter. I've never met anyone 
who didn't, who didn't realize the significance of a handwritten message. Just the fact that it took 10 times the amount of time to write it out, as for your thumbs to just jotting it poorly and relying on autocorrect. We don't even have to make sure our text messages are grammatically correct because we have algorithms to do that for us, you know? No one even expects text messages to be correctly punctuated or... Right, that's another thing, how what we say follows the medium, you know? It's not, you can't separate these things language is moving in the direction of internet lingo. And and this is something I've been, something an alarmist of this around all my friends. I'm sure many of them have been annoyed to death about this. If you participate in this language, and there's a really unique aspect about form of language that has evolved through the internet. If you use this form of language, you are contributing to the morphology of the English language in a negative sense. Because the way language changes, phonetically, morphologically, it changes through use. So one example of this, okay, in the past century, the WH sound in words like who or where, the H sound, the where sound, has been lost from those words. So most people just say where, not where. They say when, not when. That's not a significant loss, but that is something that has been lost from the language. And what's possible is in the future, the way we spell words will follow that on the tail end of that change. So so it's very possible and in fact likely that in the future where, when won't even have an H in the spelling. I mean, how many times do you receive text messages that, that are like that, you know, when without an H? And it's it's truncated not for grammatical reasons, it's truncated because it's one less letter to type, right? But the other thing, and and this is the thing that, that I find distressing, and I think has really no precedent in the history of any languages that I have been able to find, that the kind of language that you use on the internet is a kind of sarcastic, cutesy form of language in which you use certain words and you say you say things in certain ways, you use certain spellings, because it's so hard to describe something like an anti-intellectual humor. It's like you're, ma- you're acting dumb and it's funny because you're acting that way. You know, it's become a social practice. And so people jump on board with using this, this kind of language voluntarily in order to parody it, in order to make fun of it. Or just to um, signal that you are in the know culturally, that you know how to use that language, right? but you're still using it. Occasionally, you know, when I text a friend, especially if it's in a, a joking context, use this kind of language in a parroting or sarcastic way to make fun of that kind of language. And then I'll realize it doesn't matter that I'm making fun of it, I'm participating in it, and I am contributing in a way that is insincere. What I think is unprecedented is the language is actually shifting and and changing because the majority of people who are using the English language are using it in a way that is intentionally degrading of it. Yeah, there there is an anti-intellectualism on the internet. And I think it's important to stress that this is not a type of grammatical Nazism. 
you know, this is not even like grammatical purists uh, of the early century who decided that you shouldn't split an infinitive in English because it was impossible to split an infinitive in Latin. They were, it was all the same word. You couldn't split it. So therefore, you shouldn't do it in English. Those rules really had nothing to do with English. You know, those are the types of rules that are still taught to this day. People don't know why. That, what we're observing is not some sort of arbitrary rule imposed on English because of historical reasons. We're watching, I think, at a, an incredible rate of speed, people abandoning the best parts of English, the most beautiful parts, the most sophisticated parts of English for something that is makes slang look artistic. And we're watching it happen in not even half a generation's time. Oh, and by the way, if you never split infinitives, you won't be able to boldly go where no one has gone before. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you know, the, the dictionaries that exist to preserve language, the, the Oxford English Dictionary is one of the most incredible documents, especially the, the full edition that shows you the, the history of any word you can look up. It will give you the history and etymology and morphology of how that word has changed both... Um, in sound and in and in sight and in meaning over the course of centuries but in, in 2018 so the the oxford english dictionary does a word of the year and in 2018 the word of the year was the crying emoji yeah yeah that that makes me want to use the crying emoji <laughs> not sure people in the future will know how to speak without you know i've i've heard some of my friends say lol in conversation <laughs> or, or or you've heard people say hashtag and it's bleeding even though we're doing it in jest right bleeding right. into language yeah because we we always live partially in that virtual world and all of this is to say, in many senses, if we are not careful, the form follows the function. And when that happens, when form is subverted and subjugated to function, the function itself just falls apart. All of our communication is through the truncated, in many senses, vulgar form of text messaging, instant messaging, and emoji and gifs the content of what we are saying will resemble will be directly proportionate to the value of the medium and i've i've seen this in myself the majority of of what i'm texting is you know fluff it's not worth preserving yeah i've but been sitting... meaning to talk to you about that <laughs> well, but sitting down to a, to write a letter you are invited and in fact you are commanded essentially by the medium to rise above yourself and transcend instantness you know you want you want to say something that will last because you are talking to an eternal soul and so much of the time we talk to each other as if we only exist here for a blip in eternity it's very interesting that you know the the history of the the christian tradition not only that but when you when you sit down to write a letter you're using the same medium that most of the New Testament was communicated in. There's a, a gravitas and a seriousness there to picking up pen and putting it to paper that 
was used to communicate the most profound truths of Western culture in an epistle. When you sit down to compose a letter, you're entering into a place in your mind that is infinitely more profitable for you and for, I, th I think it's much like journaling in this way, that you're going to a place in your mind where things are being organized and sorted out as the pen moves across the paper. You are composing not only sentences, but you're organizing your thoughts. Yeah. You're collecting yourself in a certain way. You are benefiting mentally from this exercise. Mm -hmm. And there's a, it's a deep kind of concentration. I'm sure you've experienced it too, as you're, you're thinking about sentences in your head and your fingers are moving to write it down, but your thoughts are elsewhere. Right. In a deeper sort of way, much like the experience of reading a, a good book, that deep reading that you are, you're not even aware of, of what is happening around you. And there's a type of deep concentration necessary. Um, Nicholas Carr has, a, has an excellent book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. It's a very disturbing book. It is an incredible book. And I think a similar process of, of what is happening in text messages versus composing letters, we're learning to be shallow. We're learning to be skimmers that skim through lengthy web pages. We don't read deeply, and now we're not writing deeply either. And, you know, one of the things about letter writing as, a, as being ceremonious, one thing you cannot say about text messages or, or even emails that you can say about a letter is you can't send a text message to someone and say, I've just given this person a gift. <laughs> but when you send someone a letter, it is a gift. It is something in itself, regardless of what you say in it, so much more meaningful and something that they will probably keep for many years. It's, it's interesting that letter writing invites a kind of ceremonious approach. I have a, two good friends from college who have been posting online pictures of the, of the letters, of the envelopes that, that they've received from each other, always inspiring and convicting because I, I haven't been writing enough letters but one of the things they do is uh, so on the, on the back flap where traditionally you might use a wax seal um well, there's no need to use wax seals anymore but one of the things they'll do is is draw designs usually tolkienian designs and it's interesting that that seems so appropriate that you know it, it carries a meaning this insignia is part of the ceremony of of this of this thing just the meaning of that symbol being emblazoned on an envelope and sent and the whole thing the whole package being itself a symbol of something something beyond it yeah there was so much more to the experience uh, there were there were these little sub conventions to letter writing, like you talk about, I remember using the greeting, we use nicknames mm -hmm. in the greetings, and we had fun with the postscripts. And there was the envelope that you could do something with, like you could use a seal, like you mentioned, or you could write something interesting on the back of the envelope, or there's the classic, you know, lipstick kiss from the soldiers in, <laughs> you know, in the, on the front lines that his girlfriend has added her perfume to the letter. And this, there is a world of experience right. in an envelope. One, I probably wouldn't be here today if my grandmother had not sent this smoldering black and white photo of herself to my grandfather on the yes. front yeah. during World War II, and he hung I, it up you know, beside I love his this story. And uh, 
you know, that was an enclosure in a written letter, you know, and that's true for many people, I'm sure. And, and they had a lively correspondence back and forth. Well, both your grandfather and great grandfather, right? Yeah, my, my great grandfather wrote back from France, these little pencil drawn letters written in a pup tent in France <laughs> wow. during a break from a long march across the mm-hmm. countryside, ink blurred because it was raining and dropped on the letter. You know, like that puts me there in a tactile way, the kind of way that a novelist put his readers in a moment with real tactile experiences. Letters do that for yes. us. It's actually, you know, rain, a rain from the First World War. <laughs> it's an incredible thing to think about. Mm-hmm. How much is lost if all of that communication could have been through text messaging. We might have heard the the faintest rumor of a story, but we wouldn't have any record of it. Yeah, and I mean, an entire drama consists just in the back and forth of those letters, you know. And and I know your your grandfather sent some two hundred and seventy letters, I think, right, throughout the the entire course of World War Two that he was stationed over there. Yeah, um, that was that was something that I went through and, and read them all. You know, all I had to go on before that was the sort of oral tradition that was passed down in my family. Mm. And what I realized by the time that I'd finished reading his letters in his own hand, sometimes typed out, but most, most of them handwritten. Oftentimes censored. <laughs> right, censored or, or sometimes reduced to the little photographs that they mailed back and forth on film the v-mail yeah v-mails but what i realized you know i got such a a more fully rounded picture of what it was really like my memory and even the memory of my mother and my grandmother telling those stories had distorted things Mm. you know inevitably no one means to but history gets changed it's history as we remember it history as it's been passed down but how often do you get to experience history as it was with any kind of certainty? And, yeah. and I think it's just so refreshing to remember what people were really like, not just yeah. how you remember them. Hmm. And I'm always surprised at how much I've forgotten what it felt like to be in the presence of another person mm-hmm. long after they're dead. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded of that in letters in a way that I'm not, I'm not capable of preserving that in my mind without these physical cues, which is why I've become something of an archivist, I guess, with all these boxes of letters. And, mm-hmm. and now I have you know, letters from multiple generations that I'm, I'm making perhaps a vain attempt to preserve for a little while longer in, mm-hmm. my, in my family. Because without the cues, one has to wonder whether the memory would even be there. And that is part of the futility and ephemeral nature of our lives is that you know, these things are constantly being lost. Well, I hope at some point we can devote an entire episode to the story of your grandfather writing those letters. I know you've written pieces about that, and that's a story that is worthy of an episode in, in itself. But do you have any letters you can read that are from your grandfather, great-grandfather, from your archive that you've diligently kept? Yeah, I had some fun this morning, actually, knowing that we were going to record this podcast today. I dove into a chest, really a treasure chest full of old letters that my grandfather sent home. There are hundreds of them in there, and they're from the late 30s and early 40s. He was selling magazine subscriptions door-to-door in South America, Hmm. traveling all over the continent. This was a a boy from Garden City, which is outside of Roanoke, just dirt poor, you know, all the cliches about holes in your shoes and 
and he won a contest. He was very intelligent. I actually found some of his school notebooks and stuff mixed in with this chest. Mm-hmm. It is I wish I could convey the experience. I've got this this letter here. It was an airmail letter written on wax paper that is huh. nearly it is translucent. But this page. is something they would do, of course, to save the weight of the page. And the env- the envelope is also waxy. I love hearing the crackling of the pages. This, this is, is tactile. This is yeah. real. And I'll read you just the first page. My grandfather is describing a plane crash in the bay at Rio de Janeiro. He was in the the neighborhood nearby. So he was working in a district of town called Botatoga, right out along the beach here in Rio on Friday afternoon, about 2.25 p.m., when I noticed a lot of people running down the street toward the beach and shouting something in Portuguese about, he's got the word for airplane here. I had some idea that it must have been a crash or something to cause so much excitement, so I followed them. When we reached the beach, I saw about a hundred yards out in the water, the tail end of a big passenger plane. At first, I thought that it was a seaplane that had made the wrong kind of landing and gone under. Later, I found that there were two planes which had crashed together in the air and fell to the ground. The heavy transport passenger plane landed in the ocean while the other a smaller private plane with only a pilot aboard crashed through the roof of a bicycle shop on the other side of the street, which ran along the edge of the beach. I arrived at the scene about two minutes after the crash because I was working only about two blocks up the street from the bicycle shop, which was torn completely down by the small plane. The passenger plane was on its way to Sao Paulo, where we worked last week with a crew of three men and 15 passengers one of whom was a young woman. They were all killed by the crash, and I watched them dive down and bring out the bodies of almost 10 of the passengers. They pulled out the pieces of the big plane and the rest of the bodies yesterday. In all, counting the young British aviator who was flying the small plane, there were 19 lives taken in that crash. It was the most horrible mess I have ever seen. The British fellow, I was told, tried to use pieces of his plane as a parachute after the crash in the air as his plane was falling. It didn't work, however, and his body landed about 50 feet from his plane with such a hard fall that he was almost buried in the ground in a vacant lot. His plane was torn into so many pieces that you could have almost picked up the pieces with a vacuum sweeper. Yeah, just fascinating. And he even marks it down as though he knows the significance of this. At the end of his letter, he says, Well, folks, that was my complete description of the catastrophe which happened on November 9th, 1940, at 2.25 p.m. on the Botatoga Beach in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I actually did a Google search to see if there was any mention of this crash. Mm-hmm. I have not been able to confirm any kind of detail from history is just sort of lost, but I know about it. I have an eyewitness description of a crash. Wow. Incredible. The internet doesn't have a memory like that. No. It does have a memory, though, but it's not a particularly good one, especially now. And I know that there is a sense in which the internet is permanent, but it's permanent in all the wrong reasons. And I know that, you know, any kind of slip up, any kind of mistake, whether it's a political heresy that you didn't intend to say, but maybe it was a typo. If you say something embarrassing, it doesn't matter. These are things that are entrapped in the web of the Internet. And these are the things that are dredged up years later. How many how many scandals, how many reputations ruined 
How many people constantly reminded without forgiveness of something that they've done 15 years ago because the internet never forgets a sin or a peccadillo and there are the masses twitter masses facebook masses to ensure that judgment is indeed eternal yeah it is ironic that the memory of the internet is such a sinister thing Mm -hmm. it's something we dread and now increasingly think hard about the things that we post before we decide whether to post them, knowing that even our future employers look at our social media posts. And perhaps in some countries now, even the government looks at your social media and creates a score judging you via the content of your posts. This is, this is, a, this is a menacing type of memory. I know a, a colleague in an orchestra was recently fired because of a a comment that she made on someone else's post that was seen by Big Brother. And it was, in this situation, it it was the the careless nature in which she said what she said and didn't even intend. But it didn't matter because it was there and it will never not be there anymore. Mm-hmm. It is a minefield. The, the world has changed so much from, you know, we tend to think of, of past ages as being so much less privileged and impoverished because of their lack of technology. But one begins to wonder and perhaps even long for that era, the simplicity that it brought. It was not such a deranging era as we face now it was good for us as human beings Mm -hmm. to do things like write physical letters what is your experience we talked a little bit earlier about my experience writing letters growing up in that transition from physical letters to emails to Mm -hmm. social media what what is i know you sometimes take great pains to preserve this tradition could you tell us a little bit just give us a little peek into what letter writing is like for you and how you still do it Right. In the past probably six or seven years, I have been diligently archiving all of the letters that I receive and all of the letters that I write. And so what I always do is when I get a letter after I read it, I will scan the letter, digitally scan the letter into a PDF and then I will type out the letter in a transcription in a Word document. And then I will save that archived PDF facsimile of the of the real letter and the transcription into a system organized by dates and person. So I, I have an alphabetical list of all the people that have ever sent me a letter in the past six years. I do the same thing for all the letters that I write as well. Um, So I I have a complete digital archive of my letters, which on one hand, it's just easy to access. And I pull from letters that I've written, letters that people have written me quite often. And it's also something that I know eventually family members or the historically curious, this is a process that they will do with, with a body of letters. And it's actually, it is a very painstaking process if you have hundreds or thousands of letters to do. If you have one letter, it's no big deal. It takes five minutes and then it's archived forever. So actually, let me read a letter from 2015, a letter that you wrote, actually, and you probably don't have access to this after you sent it. I I didn't scan it. So yeah, it's the only extant copy you have, probably. (laughs) Weren't we playing chess 
Oh, yeah. Okay, so we should explain this. One of the things that we have done, play chess games in the postscript uh, using chess notation. So uh, we've had games going beginning with PS E4. <laughs> so, I remember having a board set up. It was always the fate of that game to be wiped out by the dog's <laughs> tail or something like that. <laughs> right. When we, when we get to the point in the game where it becomes too complex to keep in our heads, so we just get out a real board and set up the pieces. Yep. So this is from February 2015. By the way, your chess move in this letter is B6. <laughs> I'll just read the first paragraph. I'm realizing that this is five years ago, but this is a conversation that we've been having for for many years. I think you had given me a, an old copy of For Whom the Bells Toll. And so in my previous letter, I must have thanked you for that. You say, you are quite welcome for the book. I hope it stands proudly on your shelf for many decades to come and reminds you of the season when we met at various coffee shops to discuss writing and creativity and books, our itinerancy at those tables, our coats and satchels and notebooks at hand, a seeming metaphor for the vagrancy of our ideas and stories and blog posts, as yet unpopular notions <laughs> without a home in this world. <laughs> nice. We may yet spend the remainder of our lives mining the ideas we have had during this time, but it will always be the real concrete objects, real ink and paper and journals and correspondence without power cords or apps or dedicated memory that remind us of it most vividly. And for that, I am grateful. I am even realizing as I write this that a handwritten letter in today's technological age is in itself a kind of protest. It rejects the course of least resistance. It affirms that just because some technology affords us an easier method does not make it a superior or more meaningful means of communication. Without exercising discretion in choosing the good, the true, and the beautiful from a plethora of alternatives, a culture will always be swept along into whatever becomes possible. Novelty rules the day, so this real ink and paper correspondence seems to me a good way for us to celebrate the richness of the life of letters. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I forgot about that. What can we do now to spark a renaissance in letter writing? I'm hoping as we've been talking that someone has been inspired, maybe even if a single person has been inspired to sit down and write a physical letter and send it to someone because of this podcast, then mm. I think this will be a worthwhile conversation. I'm actually planning to sit down and write a letter to my wife. That was something that we used to do, even though we are married and live in the same house, we exchange letters from time to time. And there's a kind of self-awareness there knowing that we will leave these letters behind a memorial to our relationship and what this this time in our life was like. And and that's a really fascinating example of letter writing because you're writing a letter and you have the most convenient form of communication. You know, you could just look across the room and say what you want, but letter writing transcends convenience. You know, it transcends time and space. It is a thing that has a world of meaning in itself that will continue long after anything that you could have spoken is forgotten. Thank you for listening to the Notion Club podcast. 
Today's episode features an old Scottish folk tune called Bonnie Jean, performed by Tim McDonald and Jeremy Ward from their album The Wilds. In the coming weeks, we will be welcoming more guests to the Notion Club for exciting conversations about great art and music, profound ideas that are desperately needed by our modern world, and of course, stories of adventure. The Notion Club podcast will return next Thursday. Thanks for listening.